Area 941 podcasts are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. On April 10, 2013, I interviewed Glenn Frankel by phone about The Searchers, The Making of an American Legend, which was an in-depth study of the classic John Ford film from the mid-50s. Since that time, Glenn Frankel has written two additional in-depth books about iconic American films, High Noon, The Hollywood Blacklist and the Making of an American Classic in 2017, and Shooting Midnight Cowboy, Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and the Making of a Dark Classic, which came out in 2021. Glenn Frankel served as the Washington Post Bureau Chief in London, Jerusalem, and Southern Africa, and won a Pulitzer Prize in 1989 for international reporting. What is the film The Searchers, for people who don't know, and why do you think it's important? Well, The Searchers is an iconic Western, made by the great Western director John Ford. Came out in 1956, starred John Wayne, so we're with the people who really are at the heart of that genre. But at the same time, The Searchers is the work of a mature film director. John Ford was in his early 60s, and it's a very complex film. It tells a simple story, in a way, of the abduction of a nine-year-old girl by Comanches and the long-time search, seven-year search, really, of her uncle and her adopted brother to find her and bring her back uh, to her Texas family. But it explores themes of racism and, and gender issues and the conquest of the West that were very powerful at its time and still, I think, resonate with Americans now. In one way, it's just a really good Cowboys and Indians movie from the 1950s. But when you dig deeper, I think it touches on themes that have been part of the American frontier and American history since the 19th century, and that continue to be important for us to figure out in the 21st. Well, when you're talking about themes, specifically put this film in the context of myths about America and the American West. Well, the subtitle of my book, as you point out, is The Making of an American Legend. And what my book tries to trace is how a simple true story, the kidnapping of a nine-year-old girl by Comanches back in the 1830s in Texas, has been told and retold over generations and reimagined, if you will, and, and embroidered to fit the sensibilities of each generation until it has become an American myth. And it's a myth about, essentially, about the conquest of the West, who the people were who did it, why we did it, what our relationship was with the Native Americans who lived on the land. And so The Searchers, the film, in a sense, is just one iteration of that continuing story. Itself is based on a, on a novel by an author named Alan LeMay that came out in 1954. Uh, and then the movie comes along in 56 and takes these same themes. And the themes we're talking about are the question of what happens when a white person is abducted or crosses over the boundary, if you will, the invisible border between being part of white, quote, civilization, unquote, and then being part of 
of another world, of a Native American community, of the Comanches in that time period, what it means when you're dragged back again, because in The Searchers, as in the original story, uh, the woman who was kidnapped eventually is restored to her original family, and the consequences of that, and how we treat people who have crossed that invisible line, what's happened to them along the way. The themes of our Westerns, you know, are, are reiterated in the searchers in lots of ways. For example, the fate worse than death, which is the theme about what happens when women and children are taken over to the other side, when women are forced to have sex with Indians, for example. The impact of that on our, you know, the psychosexual impact of that on our society, the ways we thought about that, the ways that those women were treated when they were came back to white society as if they had been polluted somehow, uh, as if they were changed, as if they were no longer people who could be part of white society, is an ongoing theme in Westerns, in captivity narratives, and The Searchers is very much about that kind of thing. The other, I would say, major theme or trope, if you will, is the laconic you know, man on horseback, the Indian fighter, uh, epitomized by John Wayne, both in so many movies, but especially in The Searchers. He's the engine of civilization, if you will, through gun violence, uh, whether it's against Native Americans or bad guys, he's the one who tames the West. The West needs to be tamed so that we can take it over and live in it successfully. And yet in The Searchers, at the same time that he's sort of our knight in shining armor, He's a much more complex character. He's out to restore his niece in the beginning of the film, to bring her back, if you will. But as time goes on, and the niece changes from being a nine-year-old girl to being a 16-year-old woman and is married to a Comanche and, again, has sex with Indians, whether voluntarily or not, his mission changes. He's no longer out to restore her. He's planning to kill her. And he's planning to kill her as an act of vengeance, as an honor killing, as a sort of put the world right somehow. And this conflict within himself, this question of what he's going to do when he finally does find her, uh, becomes the heart of the narrative tension of the movie. And one of the things that makes the movie such a, a richer, darker piece of work that isn't simple, it isn't clear exactly what he's going to do, it's pretty clear he doesn't know himself what is the right thing to do. And that kind of conflict within this person, I think, is what really sets the searchers out as something very special and very different. Glenn Frankel, we'll go into some other elements of the film, but I want to go back a little bit into the area of the the abduction. Now, uh, this is based on a true story or the myths surrounding the true story of Cynthia Ann Parker and her uncle James Parker. Uh, he searched for her. John Ford moved it, or rather Alan LeMay, I guess, moved it about 40 years later. But this actually happened in the 1830s during early, uh, the early expansion of the West, correct? That's right. Cynthia Ann Parker was kidnapped in May 1836. She was part of a large family, you know, um, extended family that came to Texas, settled in central east Texas. This is a, a very typical sort of frontier group. They travel as a family, you know, they, the, the front line for them is the front line where their children and the wives and the elderly are all joined together in a community. They have a fortified farm out there, settlement out right at the edge of, of Comanche territory. And sure enough, the Comanches and Kiowa come in one day, 
Uh, they kill five men and they kidnap five young people, including Cynthia Ann. Her father is killed in front of her, her grandfather is killed in front of her, and she's hauled off into Comanche territory. She spends 24 years living with the Comanches. She marries a Comanche, she has three children, she becomes a Comanche in every possible way. And then in December 1860, another group of armed men, this time US Cavalry and Texas Rangers, descend on the camp where she's living, kill the people around her, looking like they're going to kill her because she seems like just a, another Comanche woman, but then they notice she has blue eyes. So rather than kill her, they take her back to Camp Cooper in Texas. They figure out that she is indeed the sort of uh, semi-famous, you know, legendary Cynthia Ann Parker, the white Comanche princess, and they restore her to her white family. So she becomes this kind of iconic Texas figure. She's almost a celebrity at first. They take her to the state legislature and get her an annual uh, sum of money and a piece of land. They show her off outside a retail store in Fort Worth. You know, she's, she's kind of this big prize. They take photos of her. But the problem is it becomes clear that she has really no desire to be back in Texas, to be back with her white family. All she wants to do is get back to her children and her husband. She's got her little baby girl with her who is taken with her, but the t her two sons and her husband remain in Comanche territory. And even though it's maybe 100, 150 miles from Fort Worth to the heart of Comancheria, there's no way you can cross that line. It's in the midst of a 40-year war between Comanches and Texans, really the longest war that ever took place on American soil. And it's a terrible war where families, where women and children are not just, you know, a collateral damage, uh, the inadvertent victims of a war between armies. No, this is a war. This is an intimate war of civilizations. It's the real clash of civilizations where you're out not only to destroy the other side's, you know, soldiers, you're out to destroy their families, to destroy their culture. It's a war of nations, if you will. And she is, in some ways, the ultimate victim of this war, you know, traumatized not just once in 1836 as a little girl, but again in 1860. Let's put this in perspective. Comancheria, that's the area that would now be the Oklahoma-Texas panhandle, correct? Yeah, it's even a bigger, it's kind of a big egg-shaped thing. So it gets down, Richard, into the heart of Texas, and it goes up into sort of Kansas and New Mexico. You know, but it's, it's the limestone southern plains, if you will, and uh, quite a distinctive area, tough area to live in, an area that the Comanches really dominated for an extended period. Was that area, I mean, were they always there, or were some of these people from back east moved into that area through expansion? No, the Comanches come basically out of the Rockies. They're vaguely related to the Shoshone up to the north, and they come down for all kinds of reasons to find more hospitable territory, a place to live. And so they're coming from that direction. The folks coming from the east are settling in what's called Indian Territory, and now, of course, is Oklahoma. So there's some intermingling between these groups, but they're from two different population centers, if you will. And the Comanches develop a very, very warlike culture. Um, they master the horse, uh, which the Spanish conquistadors brought over faster and more effectively than almost any Indian grouping. But they're living on these limestone plains. It's a hard place, you know, to survive. So they are nomadic warriors. They're very good with each other. They're very generous within their kinship uh, community, 
but they're very, very tough on outsiders because, as I say, resources are so limited and, you know, you're not going to share them except with the people you most care about. It's a very distinctive culture, even though there's no, like, Comanche, one nation. There are all these bands, but they speak relatively the same language. They know each other. They recognize each other as, as relatives, if you will, as part of the same general grouping. And as I say, they have great success for a couple of centuries there with the horse and with the, the buffalo economy. Their birth rate is very low, and that's one of the reasons why they end up doing a lot of abductions of young people, especially from Mexico. They're providing themselves both with members of their own, you know, restocking their own families, but also with a lot of people who are more or less treated as slaves or servants because they have a horse-based economy, and it's very labor-intensive. Uh, Glenn Frankel, in The Searcher's Making of an American Legend, you make the following comment. Comanches never grasped the deep cultural, religious, sexual, and racial hatreds that kidnapping Texan women and children aroused. Why do you think that was? I think we're talking about people from two very, very different worlds. Comanches were very pragmatic, relentless, ruthless at times. Just like the Texans didn't have any empathy for Native Americans, the Comanches didn't have any empathy for Texans. I think also, this I've noticed, as you mentioned earlier, I've spent time in the Middle East and in Africa. You know, when, when a conflict starts between two peoples, it starts on the ground with a struggle for land, if you will, or specific rights at a specific moment. But as that conflict continues over time, each side builds an ideology around the conflict, a way of explaining and justifying the worst possible things they could do to the other side. And it usually centers a little bit, at least, around viewing the other as somehow less than human. Uh, their grievances are not legitimate, ours are. Their suffering is not really legitimate, or they don't suffer the way we suffer. They don't, for example, care about their children the way we care about our children. And that's a common theme that you hear in these kind of conflicts. So basically, you desensitize yourself to the, to the pain you're causing your enemy, and you justify it in all kinds of ways. And Comanches are just as capable of doing that as white Texans were. And then you've got two other elements playing in, which is in the 30s, you also have, 1830s, you also have the growing uh, dissociation of Texas from Mexico, which resulted in things like the Alamo. And then later on, you have the, um, the Civil War. Can you go into that a little bit and how that reflected on how the Indians and Comanches related to the white settlers of the region? Well, remember, Texas is the one state, I think, in the, in the continental United States that actually was its own republic for nine years. And Texans have a very proud history. I'm speaking to you from, from Austin, Texas. And it, okay, it's part of the United States, Texas, but it also, you know, sometimes feels like it's another country. And so this kind of nationalism and this sense of destiny, of imperial destiny, is very woven into the Texas culture. And so, yes, they, they become a nation in 1836. Uh, not only does the Alamo occur, but, you know, the victory over Santa Ana and the declaration of the Texas Republic, and that goes on. And you're right, then, you know, in 1845, Texas finally becomes a part of the United States. Uh, the U.S. government gets involved, but the Texans still have their own militias, their own Texas Rangers. And this war with the Comanches continues, and there are times when the federal government and U.S. troops are sort of you know, mediators, they're like caught in the middle. They're trying to, you know, uh, protect Texans, but at the same time find some kind of settlement resolution with Native Americans. Eventually, almost all the Native Americans are expelled from Texas. 
uh, because Texans have a sense that they simply can't live with them, and in any, in any event, they need the land. Then the Civil War comes around. That's a fascinating moment for Comanches. They're looking at these two groups of whites killing each other. They were amazed, a little puzzled. They took some advantage of it, of course, to make their own gains during the war because, you know, the U.S. Cavalry was no longer part of the scene and, and the Texans themselves, so many of them had gone east to fight in the war. So it was a good moment, a little bit of, a, you know, a deceptive time for Comanches because they thought maybe they were winning when, in fact, it was just a hiatus in their long-term defeat. Nonetheless, this constant warfare... You always underestimate, I think, what's going on in the other side and the fact that the conflicts within a community sometimes, you know, are, 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 are more violent, uh, you know, than the than more traumatic than the ones between, you know, enemies. And the Civil War was one of those moments. It was also one of the reasons why Cynthia Ann Parker could never go home. Texans were engaged in two wars in the early 1860s. They were still fighting off the Comanches, and at the same time, they were fighting the United States. There was no way anyone was going to take her to the place she considered home. We're going to keep on with the history, but uh, side into the film, do you think this is the reason why LeMay and Ford made Ethan, the character played by John Wayne, a former Confederate because that would up the racial tension? I think that was a, a part of it. I think LeMay moves it to 1868, actually 1869 in the novel because that's the sort of twilight era of Comanche power. They're on their way. They're starting to lose. And so, first of all, it's possible for two guys to sort of roam through Comanche territory in a way that they couldn't have in the 1830s. I think they're interested in the Civil War. They're interested in soldiers who have fought. I'm not sure it's about the racial tension. I think that would have been out there even in the 1830s. But it just gives you an era where the, the, especially the settlers who have gone to the north in Texas are up against, you know, uh, new tensions. As Comanches were losing, uh, some of the violence and some of the warfare even increased. And LeMay's just more comfortable. He's a guy who loved horses and he loved, you know, munitions. He knew a lot about guns. He liked the gun, <laughs> frankly. I think he liked the handguns and, and the rifles better in the late 1860s than the ones he would have been writing about in the 1830s. So for all those practical reasons, he moves it forward. And John Ford comes along and takes real advantage of this. Because he takes the uncle, who's just one of two main characters in the novel, and really not the most main one. The younger nephew is, is the more central character in the novel. But John Ford's got the great John Wayne to play the, you know, the major figure, to play the uncle in the movie. So they beef up the uncle's character. They make him darker as well and more troubled. That whole conflict going on within him is really in the movie more than it is in the book. And they take full advantage. So having been a Confederate having fought in the Civil War, then having sort of disappeared for three years mysteriously. What's he doing? Is he out there robbing stagecoaches? Is he working for Maximilian in Mexico? Who is this guy? It creates an aura of mystery uh, of an outsider, a man of violence, that I think just adds the kind of texture Ford's looking for when John Wayne comes riding up to the door. So we go in a progression from James Parker, the kind of a hard-nosed religious guy, uncle, who never finds Cynthia. We go from that to Alan LeMay's less important uncle and then on to John Wayne. So there's kind of a progression there. Very much so. James Parker was a backwoodsman, you know. He, he styled himself a man who knew Indians, who knew their lore, 
who could, you know, travel through their territory, but he was, as you point out, singularly unsuccessful in rescuing Cynthia Ann and really ham-handed in a lot of ways. He leaves behind a sort of 90-page narrative of his efforts to find the various people. And he does help recover four of the five young people, but never Cynthia Ann. So you're right, then there's a progression. When Alan LeMay comes along in the 1950s, he goes and he talks to members of the Parker family in East Texas. But what they found interesting is he wasn't asking them so much about Cynthia Ann. He was asking them about James Parker. He was interested not so much, in other words, in the victim of the kidnapping, but more in the, in the impact of the kidnapping on the family that's left behind. And he uses the searchers to talk about that. He focuses on this quest, which, as you know, is a great sort of literary theme. And, um, and that's why the book is so effective. And then, as I say, Ford comes along, he's got the great John Wayne, and, and he changes it yet a little more. And he raises these themes. You know, in the novel, the uncle isn't necessarily going to kill his niece, Debbie. He wants to find her, but he's more concerned with vengeance. But in the movie, it becomes very clear that killing her is on the agenda and very much the narrative tension that drives it forward. Cynthia Ann, would that be a representation of the Stockholm Syndrome? Well, yeah, though, um, it's Stockholm Syndrome on steroids. I mean, if the Comanches had had a team of psychologists planning out these kinds of abductions, they couldn't have done it any better. Um, it works wonderfully well if they're getting victims who are between the ages of, say, 8 and 14. These sort of young warriors are taking them off and brutalizing them as they ride them on horseback. Sometimes they strip them or tie them down, and it's a terrible week or so. And then they get to a Comanche village where a family who's lost a child of their own, perhaps, embrace this child, this newcomer to the community. If you're a boy, you get to learn how to ride horses and shoot bows and arrows. It's like Boy Scout camp, endless Boy Scout camp. If you're a girl, you got to do the labor because women did almost all the labor in these villages. But at the same time, you're embraced warmly. So it doesn't take too long until you're Indianized. You learn their, you lose your language, you learn their language, you learn their customs. You're often under, you know, overcoming a traumatic moment that brought you here. And sure enough, within a year, these kids were mostly turned. Wasn't so good, I should add, if you were a little child because Comanche warriors had no patience in taking babies and small children you know, and covering several hundred miles on horseback. So they would dispatch you quite quickly and often cruelly. And if you were older, you were in serious trouble because part of their notion of entertainment sometimes was to torture people and to see how they reacted under torture. But for that sweet spot of eight years old to 14 or so, this was a wonderful experience. Stockholm syndrome, you know, uh, the, the sense of identity quickly changed and you became a Comanche. Glenn Frankel, there's a long section in the book about Cynthia Ann's son, Quana, who was half white, half Comanche, and wound up being the Native American leader for several years. This kind of puts a spin on the whole thing. First of all, why did you choose to include it? And secondly, it means that Cynthia Ann's importance actually grows in stature in terms of the entire relationship between the American government and the Indians. Very much so. Now, you know, Cynthia Ann never saw Quana again, and he never saw his mother again after she's, she's re-abducted, if you will, in 1860. You're right, he's a fascinating figure. He really is all Comanche culturally, but his mother was white. 
He grows up, he becomes a Comanche warrior, but the difference is that when Comanche power is finally crushed and he surrenders with the rest of the, the remaining bands in 1875, and he comes to Oklahoma to this Indian you know, agency, he quickly picks up on the fact that he needs navigational skills, that it's, it's just as dangerous, in some ways more dangerous, to survive, you know, more difficult to survive being a ward of the U.S. government than it was being a nomadic warrior at war with the U.S. government. And Quanah is quick to pick up what needs to be done. He befriends Ronald McKenzie, the, the colonel who brought them in. He befriends the Indian agents. He makes alliances with white ranchers who pay the Comanches what they call grass money so that their cattle can graze in Indian territory on their way to, you know, Abilene, uh, things like that. He's a very practical-minded person, and I would argue that without him, the Comanches would not have survived. They were down to something like two or 3,000 people at the time of the surrender. The U.S. government really was out to crush their culture. You know, their children were supposed to go to these Indian schools where they would cut their braids and make them wear white clothing and prohibit them from speaking Comanche. So their whole culture was under threat. Without someone like Quana, who learns how to navigate between them and the white world, they could have easily vanished then. So he's the real hero of the book in many ways. I put him in there because uh, he too is a searcher. He too is a storyteller. He takes the story of his mother and he uses that story to explain to both Comanches and the white world why he is a figure of reconciliation, why he thinks this is important. His mother was a white woman. She taught him, you know, that all peoples are the same. It becomes part of the myth, a very important part of the myth, even though there's nothing about it in the film. Without him, the myth would have died. And then let's now talk about the myth a little bit. As you point out in The Searchers, the American Indian was viewed by Hollywood and in the pulp magazines in only one of two ways, either as a savage or as the noble warrior, I guess you'd call him. Uh, let, let me ask you, is that distinction the same The distinction that, say, would be found in a place like South Africa? It doesn't sound like it's something from the Israeli-Palestine situation. Not so much, though I think when you take the Bedouin or the Druze, some of these uh, groups, you know, uh, Arab groups that are, that are not, not part of the mainstream, there is some of that uh, legend out there in Israel, especially about the Bedouin and their ways. And again, the man who knows Indians, the man who can appreciate their culture, is a figure that you find in, in a lot of societies. You know, the man who knows Arabs in Israel is definitely someone who's looked up to, and often, I should add, a member of the Mossad or the internal police, because he knows their ways. He's the one who can both work with them and, if necessary, knows how to defeat them. So that's a, that's a rather international figure. In the American West, it's, there are real people like Daniel Boone, uh, you know, uh, Sam Houston, who style themselves as this kind of person. And then there are all these fictional uh, characters like uh, Hawkeye and James Fenimore Cooper. So the man who knows Indians is important to this. The Native American, as you point out, goes through different phases in Hollywood. At the beginning, he's sort of the noble savage. And then, uh, you know, over time, Hollywood succumbs, if you will, to the more dramatic version of the, you know, the rapacious barbarian. And the, you know, John Ford, you know, the great Western director goes through these phases too. The Indians in, uh, you know, The Iron Horse, his great silent film on the settling of the West in 1924. Boy, they are, they're either evil or mostly they're like childlike figures who are used by, you know, cunning, evil white people 
to do terrible deeds uh, against white civilization. And that's the way I think Native Americans begin to come down uh, over time, are, are depicted in the 1930s and the 1940s. And it's really only beginning in the 50s and much later that you know, when new, uh, there's a new sensibility about Native Americans, that people are beginning to look a different way at them. And Hollywood goes back a bit to the noble savage. By the time you get to Dances with Wolves, uh, which is, incidentally, among other things, a captivity narrative, you have the epitome of the modern version of the noble savage, the ecologist, you know, Native American, the people, the natural people who are part of the land. I happen to love Dances with Wolves. I think it's a great, uh, very powerful movie, but at the same time, it's hard not to notice that it has its own stereotypical version of the Native American. In the 1930s, as you point out, the Western was considered a genre. I mean, it was a genre in the pulps. Uh, without that many stories going beyond the pulps, LeMay may have had a few. Uh, and you also had kids' movies, serials. But in the 50s, after World War II, it all changed, and suddenly it became more than a genre. In the same way later on, I guess, that you'd say comic book heroes became more than a genre in our current environment. Why do you think the Western suddenly took off again following World War II? It, you're right. It was an incredibly popular genre. There was a theme in Hollywood at one point where, you know, when someone would say, do we have to make another Western? The studio guys would point out, hey, I don't, we don't think a Western has ever actually lost money. You know, there are a lot of reasons for that. It, it's, it's an easy genre to film. John Ford once said there's nothing more cinematic, you know, than filming a man on a horse riding along. So there's, it's partly that it fits movies very nicely. I think there's something to be said about the post-World War, you know, uh, psychology. We're in the Cold War. We're fighting the Reds, right? We've got this barbaric enemy, you know, over there in Moscow and in the Soviet Empire. And it's easy enough, I think, in some ways to make Native Americans into kind of a metaphor. The struggle, you know, in conquering the West and defeating these barbarians has some parallels and resonance when we're fighting the Cold War. Uh, no question that John Ford made three films in the late 1940s that are now considered the Cavalry Trilogy. And very much you get these kinds of themes of defeating, of the community banding together to defeat the outsiders. That feels a lot like, you know, uh, the American community defeating, you know, Soviet Russia and communism. We tell ourselves these stories to allay our own anxieties and to justify the things we do. And so the Western has always been a fable. Besides being just kind of a good story, you know, where good guys fight bad guys, it also is always the, 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 the other theme of that is how we conquered the West, how we were right to do so, how it was a virtuous thing to do, and how that's at the core of our identity as a nation. Where are the folks who, you know, founded this new country? We settled the promised land. We are God's people. We're the greatest country on earth. The Western fits very well into that whole thematic, uh, you know, series of, of self-justifications. But it also became kind of a right-wing trope, I guess, possibly in the 60s when John Wayne's image changed from, I guess, John Wayne, the iconic actor, to John Wayne, the political Neanderthal. First of all, I think the image that a lot of us have of John Wayne is that guy, you know, wearing a toupee. Uh, lumbering around in the 60s and 70s, playing the same part over and over again, often for second-rate directors. 
we tend to forget the much more interesting uh, John Wayne from the 1940s and early 50s, who's working with John Ford or Howard Hawks, who are great Hollywood directors, and who often is giving us a more complex uh, portrait of, you know, of this kind of figure. So there's that going on. At the same time, we've got, yeah, the movie, Westerns are beginning to curdle by the 1960s. They're, they're not as creative anymore. At least the mainstream Hollywood Western is just repeating itself. But then you have people like Sam Peckinpah coming along. Uh, and you have, uh, you know, the more anti-hero uh, Western that begins to take hold. The Western does begin to die, though, around the turn of the 60s into the 70s and later, because other than the revisionist Westerns, Little Big Man, you know, A Man Called Horse, these kinds of things, which revisit the Western, but in much more complex and sort of anxious ways, the traditional Western that makes us feel good about being Americans and makes us feel good about our country no longer resonates because we're a different country. We've dealt with Vietnam. We're dealing with the aftermath of the civil rights movement. We're dealing with Watergate. We're all our, you know, all of our icons are now suspect. And the Western, which is very much, as you point out, basically a very patriotic uh, genre, at least the way Hollywood had produced it all this time, that begins to fall apart at the same time the consensus over our greatness begins to collapse. Glenn Frankel, as you point out in the book, when The Searchers was released, it was just considered another John Wayne Western. But in some ways, you also say that it's kind of a transitional film. Why do you think that is? And is it just happenstance that it is? No, I don't think it's happenstance. I think it's partly because of John Ford. Well, it's largely because of John Ford, the real creator of the film. Ford's in his early 60s when he makes The Searchers. He's made a lot of westerns over the years. Some are better than others. Uh, they're quite striking. I recommend, if you haven't seen Stagecoach, incidentally, go back and look at that. You'll see a really quite engaging adult movie with a, with a great new John Wayne character in it. Uh, so Ford was always a little bit interested in complexity, but as he gets older, even more so. And what he gives us in The Searchers is, is both the myth, the man on horseback. He gives us John Wayne and Monument Valley. I mean, what could be more monumental and fundamentally, you know, Western, patriotic than that? But he's undermining the character as well, because as we talked about earlier, this isn't the white knight rescuing the damsel. This guy's going to kill the damsel. And what's that about? And why is that going on? And what about all these conflicts within the character as to what to do, how to treat Native Americans, you know, who to kill? Who do I kill after they've killed members of my family? That's all he knows how to do. Ford's giving us all that, and yet he's commenting on it. He's undermining it. And remember, he goes on after that to make The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is another forerunner, really, of this much more introspective, conflicting Western. That's the film where the character says, well, this is the West when, you know, the facts get in the way of the legend, print the legend. So Ford has always been dealing with this question of myth versus reality, not trying to reconcile them really as much as just kind of highlighting them and pointing out that there is a difference between that nice fairy tale we tell ourselves about the conquest of the West and the reality of how the West really was conquered and what it was about. He doesn't resolve that stuff. He's a man of his time. I mean, he's a paternalist at best when it comes to Native Americans. Uh, but at the same time, he's raising issues that haven't been raised before. And I think he's setting the stage not only for Liberty Valance and for, you know, The Wild Bunch, a movie which, incidentally, he hated. Uh, but nonetheless, 
he's the forerunner of it. He helps create that, and he and he sets the stage for Clint Eastwood's The Unforgiven as well, for the more modern, more complex Western that occasionally pops up. Uh, but he also went back and forth, even after The Searchers, pro-Indian, anti-Indian. I mean, he was all over the map. A lot depended on who was writing his scripts. Uh, when he's working with Frank Nugent, the, the script writer for The Searchers and, who, uh, and also for some other great Ford movies like The Quiet Man and like She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, Native Americans are treated with more respect and dignity because Frank Nugent um, was basically a New York liberal. Uh, when he's working with some of these right-wing guys, uh, he gets a different kind of movie. Eventually, he makes Cheyenne Autumn, which is his last Western, and it is a statement, if you will. I wouldn't say an apology by any means, but it is much richer and spends a lot more time focusing on the Cheyenne who are trying to escape from basically what is a, a large concentration camp in Oklahoma to get back to their homeland. It's a tragic movie. It's not a great movie. The narrative goes a bit slack and it, it goes on too long, but it is, in, in a sense, Ford really turning the focus to Native Americans. Not to say so much I'm sorry, but to say, let's see what's going on with these folks. And it's, it's a very rich portrait in that way. Alan LeMay himself, the novelist, had written a very good novel early in his career called Painted Ponies about the Cheyenne as well. A, a book that, that's very powerful, that isn't uh, paternalistic, I would say. And yet then he goes on to write The Searchers, which is incredibly tough on the Comanches and which is a brutal book in many ways. He justified it by saying, well, look, I told one side of the story. Now I wanted to get around to telling the other side. But if you read those two books together, first Painted Ponies and then The Searchers, you get a, you get a really nuanced portrait of the West and of the conflicts going on. There is one thing which is not nuanced in uh, The Searchers, which is the story of Look, the Indian Woman. Can you talk a little about that? And, you know, what is your conclusion about this strange very, very racist element within the context of the film. Yes. The Searchers is an unsettling movie. And one of the reasons it's unsettling is because it both has racist attitudes in it and seems to adopt them, and then it has this sort of other element. And you're absolutely right. Look is probably the most difficult character to reconcile with anything. She is uh, Martin, the younger, you know, the second searcher, the young man who really is the moral center of the movie, inadvertently acquires a Comanche wife in doing trading. They're, these two searchers are pretending to trade at all the various trading posts and villages on their hunt for their, you know, for the little girl. And he and Martin acquires this wife, and he, there's a terrible moment soon after that where she's lying down next to him and he kicks her down a hill. The John Wayne character who's along laughs at this, and, you know, it's considered funny somehow. I think part of this is John Ford. He was a balloon. He loved physical comedy. There's a lot of cornball humor in his movies. He kicked people in the butt a lot. He kicked John Wayne in the butt. He kicked, you know, Robert Wagner and knocked him down. He was a, John Ford was a complex man uh, who could be both brutal uh, and cruel at times and, and think it was funny. And I really think this is Ford. I look at that and, and I recoil from that moment and I think, well, Martin, Martin would never do this. You know, he would never kick anybody in the butt. He's not that kind of person. But Ford thought it was funny. Now, later on, look, helps lead these two guys to the area where the niece may be. 
and she's killed by U.S. cavalry. We don't see her death, but the two searchers come across a burned-out village, and there are bodies strewn all over the place, and in one of the teepees is Luke's body. And it's a moment where they say, why did those troopers do that? You know, she never harmed anyone. I'm not in any way saying that that moment redeems the portrait of Luke earlier in the film, or redeems, for that matter, the way that Ford treats Comanches throughout the searchers. But I'm, I am saying it adds an element of complexity and it's one of the things that makes the film so unsettling. Uh, Susan Faludi, I guess, misreads that, at least according to you, and sees that as kind of uh, as misogynist, whereas you say that within the context of myths about America, The Searchers is actually kind of feminist. I love Susan Faludi's attempt to, to analyze it, I think, because she helps point out the relevance of The Searchers. You know, her book is about America's post-9-11 reaction to being attacked. And her argument is, is that we fell back into macho ways of looking at our enemies and that those macho assumptions were forged throughout the conquest of the West. And I don't disagree with any of that, but I do think she misreads the searchers as another macho fest where John Wayne conquers all. Well, John Wayne doesn't conquer all. I'm not going to tell you the ending of the movie, but I would argue that the movie, one of the important themes of the movie is this sort of conflict between hate and love, that the uncle is out there, he's driven by hatred, by racial hatred, you know, by sexual hatred, and that's why he's setting out to kill his niece. Martin, the fellow searcher, is out to stop him. Martin, in many ways, is the representative of the feminized side of the, of the West. He's trying to, to, to redeem, to, to, to bring back his niece and try to restore what's left of this family that's been damaged so badly by this, by this war. And he represents uh, Martha, the, uh, his aunt, a woman who was killed earlier. He represents some other women who, are, who, who want to get De Debbie back. And in the end, that's one of the things that makes The Searcher such a powerful movie is because it is a conflict between love and hate. And even though the Wayne character is successful on many levels, he loses in many ways. Ultimately, he's excluded from the family at the end of the film. And I would argue that the women win, just to put it bluntly. That brings up the question, how does the film, does the film speak to the modern audience beyond that? I mean, can we in 2013 take anything away from this film other than seeing it, say, as an artifact of a particular era, a particular director, a particular myth? Well, I think the movie, the meaning of the movie has evolved with each generation. As you pointed out earlier, it was hailed just basically as a pretty good cowboy and Indian movie in 1956. Not one critic uh, noted some of these layers going on there, or the fact that Martin is part Indian, part Native American for example, all these kind of interesting sexual and racial contexts. It really took the 1970s and 80s, first of all, some of these great directors like Scorsese and Lucas and Spielberg, who loved the film growing up and quote from it frequently in their own movies and talk about it. Uh, it took film schools and it took people looking at it again. It's a complex movie, as I say, unsettling, uh, some of the acting is old-fashioned. It's got a great Hollywood score that I happen to love, but some people find a little corny, and it's got this sort of cornball John Ford humor in it. You know, my 30-year-old my daughter uh, makes fun of it. Uh, my 26-year-old son thinks it's fantastic. The fact that Susan Flutie thought it was at least worth invoking and dissecting and talking about, you know, is because the movie does still speak to who are we as Americans. What is our relationship to Native Americans? What do we owe them at this point? 
what was the conquest of the West really about? All these things still bubble up. I think it's it's a great movie. Now, you know, I'm 63 years old. I saw it as a boy. I've seen it many, many times. I would argue that there isn't another Hollywood movie from that era that evokes the kind of emotional response. Also, there's so much ambiguity in the film. Ford, whenever possible, strips away the dialogue and simply tells his story by visual narrative. And so anyone who's interested in visual narrative and storytelling can learn a lot from the searchers. Uh, you know, I think it's partly a question of honoring the past, of course, but more importantly, I think the themes of the searchers and the power of the John Wayne character can speak to every generation. Glenn Frankel, one other element of the film which you mentioned is the physical beauty of the film, and this is a John Ford thing. He filmed in Monument Valley, which I guess is still kind of out of the way, but it's so iconic that it even pops up in Roadrunner cartoons. You were there in 2008, wrote a piece about it for magazine. What was it like in 2008, and do you think it's any better now? Well, they finally have a paved road going there from Flagstaff, Arizona, which, you know, in Ford's time was just a dirt road. So it's slightly less remote, but not much. It's a Navajo park. It's not a U.S., you know, a National Park Service park. So it's still very remote. It feels like a cathedral. I mean, the, the monuments themselves are, are uh, sort of unfinished works. I think it was Willa Cather who described them like they were God's workshop, and he kind of quit early. Uh, you know, so... It just has a power to it, and no one actually lives there. You know, Ford, as you say, sets his westerns there, and he sets up little villages and communities. But in fact, I think maybe 150 people live in this 40-square-mile area because it's so hot uh, in the summer and and so cold in the winter and has so little water. So it really is an area where, where people don't live, where you come and you look at it and you see what you want to see. You can see God there if you're so inclined. You can see the puniness of man, of humankind, compared to the power of nature. Ford loved to set his films there because he basically was was telling fables. He was creating fables, and that was his stage to do that, just the way that the Globe Theater was where Shakespeare did his his stories, whether they were stories about, you know, uh, some prince in Denmark or or two teenage lovers from Italy. They all were in the Globe Theater in the same way Ford puts all his westerns, whether supposedly they're about Texas or they're about somewhere else, there in Monument Valley. Because he felt that that was, wherever it was, that that epitomized the West. And for me, as a kid growing up, you know, in Rochester, New York, who had never seen Texas or Arizona, that really did seem like my image of what the West should ought to be, this dry, relentless, dramatic place. It fit very much the sense that he was telling us a fable about our frontier and about our age. And yeah, anyone who wants to see that, it's still there. No human can really alter it in any serious way. I think they've built a new hotel, you know, that you can look out your window and see the valley. And uh, But other than that, it, it hasn't changed at all. And there are still some signs of John Ford left in the valley? Yes, there's a point called John Ford Point where he used to sit out in his, you know, in his director's chair and look out there and there's a scene in Searchers toward the end that is filmed from John Ford Point. There's that area. There are a couple of other iconic scenes that you see that clearly come from the films. There's Goulding's Lodge, the place where Ford and the film company would stay. You know, they would build this vast sort of tent city out in front of Goulding's, but Wayne and Ford and and the women and the actresses would all stay up in the lodge. 
uh, and that lodge is still there. They show a John Ford or John Wayne movie every night. At least they did, you know, five years ago. One that was filmed in Monument Valley. So you get this wonderful kind of, you know, there's the real Monument Valley sitting out in front of you, and there's the Hollywood version on screen every night. And they take full advantage of the John Ford legacy there. So again, anyone who loves Westerns or who cares about John Ford in those films, uh, you can really soak it in. Well, when you were there, you played the searchers for the local Navajos. How did they respond? They've seen it <laughs> many times. Um, the one thing, we found a woman who'd actually been in it as an extra, Susie Yazzie, who was in her early 90s then, and she'd never seen it. I didn't get her to come. You know, She just couldn't leave home at that point, at that age, to come see it. They're very proud of the work they did for Ford. Ford paid them reasonably well. He used them for things. They didn't really mind being portrayed as, you know, as savages or whatever. They, it was a payday. He treated them personally with, with respect. He liked them. And they gave him at the end of Searchers, you know, on July 4th, they were still filming out there, and they gave him this, this, uh, this deerskin, uh, naming him a member of the Navajo tribe and calling him Nataninez, the, you know, the tall chief. And uh, somebody said that Ford prized that, that little honor more than his four Academy Awards. Well, he liked having the Academy Awards too, but this meant a lot to him. He was a great paternalist, Ford. These were his people. He looked after them, and they appreciated what Ford did for, him and, for them. And that, that still resonates. You can still get pieces of that out in the valley. Well, when you were doing your research on Cynthia Ann Parker and talking to Comanches and particularly in your research on Quana and you brought up the searchers, what was the general feeling? Did the people know the movie? Did they like it? Did they trash Hollywood westerns? Got all kinds of reactions because, you know, people in the Parker family don't all toe one line on any of this. Some of them love westerns. <laughs> And, you know, people talked lovingly about the searchers. But they didn't really see it as Cynthia Ann's story in the end. There were too many changes in it, from the names to the, to the time it takes place. And after all, it is filmed in Monument Valley. They're very proud of their ancestors. They, too, tell the story of Cynthia Ann and Quana today to explain their own story, to explain who they are. And uh, not only the Comanche side of the family, but the Texan side. So, you know, they, Westerns, uh, some of them take amusement at some of the things that are wrong in the Westerns, people speaking Navajo instead of Comanche, for example. They have their own sense of themselves. They're very proud, as I say, of the heritage they come from. These two sides of the family hold annual reunions and send emissaries to each other's reunion, and they trade a silver bowl each year back and forth. It's a great American family, if you will, and a, and a very modern version of this long-standing story. I keep coming back to that line from The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance about printing the legend. Do you think that generally, uh, I mean, you're 27 years in the Washington Post, you've done a lot of research. How do we relate legends today to finding facts? Can we always find the facts? It sounds as if in your search, your own search as a searcher and to Cynthia Ann, you couldn't. No, I think it's really difficult. All you can do really is do a, a bit of sorting, if you will, to separate the few solid facts that we can know and that we can prove, if you will, or that we're comfortable with from everything else. And my book makes no effort to pretend that it's the definitive version of any of this. It isn't. It's the 2013 version that I came up with. Somebody else will come along later maybe find out a little more. What I tried to do, as I say, especially going through the archives here at the University of Texas, was to find some original material 
to find material where people had actually spoken to witnesses, to participants in the events, and to take down accurately what they said. Now, those witnesses, of course, have their own versions and may have their own motives for changing things. I tried to sort of triangulate, I tried to compare, and I simply tried to sort out what really we could show to everything else that was out there that really falls in the realm of myth. And of course, there's a lot more that is myth. And I tried to trace how the myth developed, why it developed, why people said that Cynthia Ann, for example, was, they had a love affair with the warrior she married when there's really no evidence of that one way or the other, why that was so important to people. Uh, and why other myths arose. Cynthia's father, was he killed at the, or husband rather, was he killed at the Pease River Massacre when she was retaken? It was important for the U.S. Cavalry to make that claim at the time, but there's no evidence that, was tr that it was true, and there's a lot of evidence that it didn't happen that way. So my book is both a narrative that tries to tell a straightforward story, but it's constantly stopping and saying, let's, let's stop the narrative here for a minute. Let's stop the film and kind of look at what we know and what we don't know. And let's look at why they made it this way. That's the best I could do. I don't believe that you can, you know, you can ever conquer the myth. The myth is in Texas public school system. The myth is on the screen in the searchers. The myth is in the novel. But we can try to understand where it comes from and why it's told and, and how we should ourselves view it. Then what will emerge, of course, sometimes is the anti-myth, the other side of the myth, which may not be true either. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we all tell the stories we need to tell both to justify the things we do and to explain the world to ourselves. So, you know, the legend of Dances with Wolves, again, is another Hollywood myth, um, just like The Searchers, just like the John Ford films, just like all those Cowboy and Indians movies. It, but it fit our needs, you know, in the 1990s when Kevin Costner made it. It, it fit our evolving uh, attitudes about Native Americans and who they were and how valuable they were. These are things, you know, myths, and especially in Hollywood. Uh, look at Zero Dark Thirty, this m movie about, you know, the war on terror and the, you know, and the, the killing of bin Laden. The argument goes on as to, well, was waterboarding torture and, you know, does this movie celebrate torture? And the, the, the makers of the film say, of course it doesn't, you know, we're just trying to depict what happened. But the movie's creating a myth of a nation that doesn't take any of this, you know, sitting down, that goes back and does anything necessary to destroy its enemies, that sort of thing. It's another myth. That's what we tell ourselves about who we are. That's the kind of country we are. Hollywood's always making myths, and the myths often become much more powerful than the facts behind them. How do you think, in just looking at your entire career, and particularly at Palestine and Israel and South Africa, how do you think this myth-making relates to these other two places, and what can we do as people to try to separate the myths ourselves? Because we can't necessarily go and visit the Parker family. No, that's right. But you can read my book, and that'll tell you a lot. You know, these two societies that you mentioned, you know, Israel and white South Africa, which, you know, was in control of the country for so many years, they have a lot in common with us in terms of their frontier myths and their myths of promised land. These are settler societies who come into a new, you know, territory and, and justify a conquest through their religious faith, through their sense of themselves, through their identity as a chosen people, if you will. 
and they're creating new societies. They also justify it because they're creating something new under the sun and something very special. And often they will attempt at first to sort of integrate the, the, the outsiders, the natives that they come across, but inevitably they end up in violent conflict with those natives because these are, these are struggles over land and they're often struggles between two nations. So there are a lot of parallels in that sense. And these nations need to produce myths. They need to justify who they are and to justify conquest the same way we did. I think the first thing we need to understand is that just as these things have gone on in South Africa and Israel, we've done them too. Uh, we've done enormous damage uh, to the native peoples that we came across. You know, Israelis will often invoke American history to say, wait a minute, why are you giving us such a hard time? You did stuff that's much worse than anything we've ever done. And, you know, that's a valid point. That's true. Uh, these societies go in and they justify their behavior. And at the same time, they meet often brutal opposition and violence from the other side. And it no longer becomes a question of, well, who, whose land was this to begin with? It becomes who killed who? And because you've killed a member of my family, I'm justified in wiping out yours. I think for the United States, which has a role in these societies, uh, which can have influence, I think we have a special mission, if you will, because we ourselves created a certain kind of country. We should be able to understand the forces at work, and you know, especially in the case of Israel and Palestine, we need to be mediators, we need to be available. Even when it's frustrating and even when it doesn't work, and often it doesn't, we need to stay involved because these two nations will have to at some point come to terms with each other, Israelis and Palestinians. The deal is out there. It's pretty obvious what it would have to be. It's going to take people to agree. Some people will tell you, well, this will never be settled. This will be going on. This has gone on from time immemorial, and this conflict will go on forever. But, you know, look at Europe. I mean, 70 years ago, you know, Germans and French and the British were killing, and the Russians were killing each other in huge industrial numbers. More people were killed in an off week in World War II than have been killed in all of the Israeli-Palestinian conflicts and Arab conflicts, you know, since 1948. So, you know, I, I don't know where it's going. I don't have a crystal ball to predict what will happen. All I know is, you know, it'll go on till it ends. It could stop tomorrow. Just as in Europe, they don't kill each other anymore. They argue over what? The value of the euro or the number of holes in Swiss cheese. It can be settled. It's our responsibility to be involved, I think, in helping resolve these things. And for the Native Americans here, they're, they're on reservations, but they's, they've also been integrated. And what we've seen you mentioned during the 50s when they were making the searchers, they were still taking kids out and telling them not to learn native languages. That's not happening anymore in America. Well, a lot of things have changed. I think, you know, uh, the civil rights movement made a huge difference, of course, and the emerging, you know, Latinos and Native Americans now are certainly asserting themselves and getting their share of what the society has to offer. But at the same time, you know, there's a long way to go for Native Americans. They are still underprivileged in so ways, and we have obligations to them. I mean, you know, because we're the ones who, who helped destroy their, the fabric of their society or did great damage to it. And we need be careful not to stand in the way of the rebuilding of that fabric now. There are some great people out there who are doing wonderful things in terms of education and in developing people who have their a Native American identity but still can participate, you know, in the larger society. And it's not so much them becoming little Americans, it's us opening our, our lives and opening our institutions so that they can influence how we live, because they do have a lot to teach us about how we live in the world. 
Finally, do you think the Western is a dead genre now? Well, I hope not. It's never going to be, I think, quite the uh, one-third, one-quarter of all Hollywood movies that it was in the 50s. But we always need tales of where we come from. We need to explain ourselves to ourselves and to other people. We need to make more complex versions of the Western, more ambiguous versions, if you will. I think that project began with Searchers and is ongoing. But I often think about, could you remake The Searchers? Would that be a useful project? It's pretty hard to come up with an actor who can do what John Wayne did. Nonetheless, I think someday it might be really interesting if someone took a crack at it, looking at it from the perspective of now, because I think it still has something to tell us, and I think the Western still, in modern terms, can tell us a lot about where we come from. You've been listening to an interview with Glenn Frankel, recorded on April 10, 2013, discussing his book, The Searchers, The Making of an American Classic. His two later books focus on High Noon and Midnight Cowboy. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>